0: there are estimates of 90 percent of those 1.4 million former felons back in the system registered to vote that is a lot of new voters in a very crucial state i'll say it is well i don't know why i came here tonight better stop them i got the feeling something right can't have all those voters i'm so scared in case i fall off my chair and i'm wondering how i'll get down the stairs
1: Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right Here I am, stuck in the middle with you Here I am Yes, I'm stuck in the middle From with you
0: From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is The broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA Also in Red Bluff and Redding, California on KFOI, Round Mountains, KKRN, and in Eureka on KGOE up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO, and Eugene's KEPW. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU, Columbus, Ohio's WGRN. In Palinville, New York on WLPP, Grand Rapids, Michigan's WPRR. In New Orleans on WHIV, Gallup, New Mexico's KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN. Fayetteville, Arkansas' KPSQ, in Seattle on KODX, Goldendale, Washington's KBGD, Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR, and in Minneapolis, St. Paul, on AM 950, KTNF. We also stream coast-to-coast and around the globe every day on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR, Revolution 99, Workforce Rising, Deprogrammed Radio, and Detour Talk. Blanketing Planet Earth five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all around swell fellow, says me. From Bradblog.com, thank you for joining us for another thrilling edition of the world-famous Bradcast. Glad glad to have you here today.
1: Action-packed.
0: We'll see. (laughs) We'll see. In addition to the blue tsunami election last November, speaking of action-packed, that swept dozens and dozens of new Democrats into the U.S. House of Representatives... Taking back a majority for the Democratic Party and putting at least a few much needed breaks on Donald Trump's out of control presidency and a similarly out of control insane GOP agenda. There was uh, also good news for voters in state and local races across the nation, including a number of important ballot measures adopted by voters, perhaps. None of them more important to the nation as a whole, in fact, than Florida's Amendment 4, which passed overwhelmingly by almost 65 percent. The measure ends the state of Florida's long, shameful prohibition on former felons ever regaining their right to vote in the state, as has been the case there for decades and decades. And that means that some 1.5 million previously uneligible voters... Former felons who long ago completed their sentences are now finally able to participate in the what I would argue in any any event is the most crucial part of our representative uh, democratic society. That would be our elections and voting. But uh, as many as a million and a half new voters in the Sunshine State could very well change the outcome of elections not just in that notoriously closely divided state, but it could have an effect nationally on the presidential election in 2020. And that, in no small part, I suspect, is why Republican lawmakers this week are quickly moving legislation through the currently GOP-controlled state legislature that would put restrictions on Constitutional Amendment 4 That was so overwhelmingly adopted last November by voters of all political stripes, I should note. The proposed bill is the worst case scenario of what could have been introduced, says Ashley Thomas today, Florida State Director of the Fines and Fees Justice Center. That, according to Talking Points memos, Allegra Kirkland today, Phil Telfion, the Executive Director of Equal Justice Under the Law, Called this new bill's language, quote, particularly devastating and says, quote, this pending legislation accelerates the need for litigation and for the courts to protect the constitutional rights of people who live in Florida because the legislature is obviously not willing to do that. Well, knock me over with a feather. The uh, Florida, <laughs> Republican Florida legislature is not willing to do the right thing to, what? to protect
1: people's right to vote, especially what? if they think they might vote against them.
0: Say it ain't so. Well, the ACLU of Florida appears to agree that uh, legislation, I'm sorry, litigation may be necessary in response to this legislation. Its executive director, Dr. Micah Kubik, will be here momentarily to detail what the GOP is actually attempting to do in hopes of thwarting the will of voters in Florida and, uh, as I say, affecting the entire nation. Uh, So he'll be here to explain what they're doing and what the ACLU intends to do about it. But before we get to uh, my guest momentarily here, some quick 2020 election-related news. Texas Democratic 2020 presidential hopeful Beto O'Rourke is calling for an end to what he sees as, quote, racist voter ID laws in his first presidential campaign stop in New Hampshire, a state which is still allowed for some reason to hold the first in the nation primary election and where there has been uh, much controversy over recent years about such laws as Republicans continue to try to Make it harder for Democratic leaning voters to vote with the passage of unnecessary laws that, in fact, do more to prevent legal voters from voting than from stopping any potential unlawful voters from being able to vote at the polling places. Speaking at Keene State College on Tuesday, the former Texas congressman also called for expanding same-day voter registration. Oh, they're not going to like that idea down in Florida in the legislature. <laughs> as well as uh, federal federal oversight of the voting system. Well, there's a good idea. Federal oversight of the voting system. You know, we used to have some of that, at least, in uh, a little gem called the Voting Rights Act of 1965 that the Supreme Court in 2013, the Republicans on the Supreme Court uh, gutted, making it much more difficult for The feds to oversee our elections, but in truth, they never really oversaw uh, our election, our voting systems, our equipment, our voting machines. That is either up to the states or counties or, more appropriately, up to the people, up to the citizenry, up to you and me, which is why it's so maddening. That we uh, continue to move to, to electronic voting systems that cannot be overseen by human beings. In any event, O'Rourke says uh, we have kept too many people out for too long, talking about voter suppression and these sorts of laws. Experts, of course, say uh, when it comes to these photo ID voting restrictions that the uh, type of voter fraud that could potentially be dis- uh, deterred by these by these restrictions, is virtually non-existent. Critics of such laws contend with evidence to support them that the GOP efforts are meant to suppress turnout from groups who tend to back Democrats, including racial minorities, and of particular note in New Hampshire, college students.
1: And I just want to point out, it's not just evidence, it is mountains and mountains and mountains <laughs> of evidence. Yeah.
0: No, it is. And yet they continue to try to anything they can do to keep voters from voting. That's the scam. That's the idea. It's not to protect elections. It's to well, maybe it's to protect. Maybe it's to protect Republican elections. (laughs) Maybe that's a way to put it. That's what they're trying to do. Yeah. Uh, In any event, O'Rourke plans to campaign in all 10 of New Hampshire's counties over the next two days. So uh, he's out there aggressively uh, taking advantage of a lot of attention that he's getting. We talked about the other day that he actually outraised Bernie Sanders in the first 24 hours by by bringing in some six point one million dollars from non political action committees. In other words, from regular human beings, six point one million, which was a huge amount of money in that it was uh, about 200000 more than Bernie Sanders brought in when he brought in $5.9 million, and that was thought to be—well, that has never been seen before.
1: In the U.S. presidential politics.
0: Yeah, not in uh, 24 hours in a, in a primary like that. Um, the next closest was uh, Kamala Harris, who raised $1.5 million in the first 24 hours, and everyone— fell over themselves thinking that was amazing and made her the front runner in the case uh, in the uh, very crowded Democratic primary. She, by the way, has had a bump over the past uh, couple of days of uh, almost 10 points in the poll in the uh, polls in the Democratic primary. Although I should note, I'm not paying attention to them at all because I think. They're meaningless.
1: Well, yeah, and it's also extremely early in the process, yes. and there's much to be done as far as investigating and and talking about what be, what all of these different candidates' policies are. Let's see if the corporate media will let us hear about their policies. By
0: way of pointing out how meaningless those polls are, the guy who's leading in the all pretty much all of the uh, polls of the Democratic primaries is someone who's not even in the race. That would be Joe Biden, who has not even entered yet. So, yeah, take all of that uh, with a grain of salt at this point, and it's kind of cool. Let's see what it is that these 15 or so so far candidates actually have to say and what they believe in Right now, all of them, I think pretty much all of them, are not Donald Trump. So that's a good thing in their favor at this point, as far as I'm concerned. So we'll be watching that closely. So far, once again, none of the Democratic primary contenders are Donald Trump.
1: So we're already ahead of things.
0: One more uh, point here before we get to uh, to my guest, and this comes from uh, Rick Hassan over at the Election Law Blog. He's the uh, UC Irvine election law professor, constitutional expert. We quote him uh, quite a bit on this show on various election-related laws and litigation and so forth. He posted, I think it was yesterday, at uh, the Election Law Blog, uh, this is troubling, and he cites some tweets here from Adam Kelsey of... ABC News Politics, who says uh, Stacey Abrams, fresh off her meeting last week with Joe Biden in D.C., said someone outside asked if she's ever going to concede the Georgia gubernatorial election. uh, And then uh, Kelsey says that she said, I said no. So, no, she's not going to concede last year's Georgia gubernatorial election in which she ran against Republican Secretary of State Brian Kemp, who oversaw his own election in that contest uh, and was accused of all forms of voter suppression during that race that was run on 100 percent unverifiable touchscreen voting systems. And Kemp is now pushing for new 100 percent unverifiable touchscreen voting systems in the state of Georgia. So anyway, when Abrams was said, is she uh, ever going to concede? She said no. And then she was asked about a presidential run, which she is, she is said to be considering. Abrams says she feels she has to consider it, according to Kelsey, because people like her aren't frequently mentioned and she has much to offer. Now, uh, people like her were talking about, well, a, had she won that uh, gubernatorial race in, uh, in Georgia last year or had she at least been named the winner, whether she won or lost, We don't know. But uh, had she been uh, named the winner, she would have been the first female African-American governor in the nation. So that is among the things she's uh, talking about when she uh, says people like her Uh, and then discussing her credentials. She added a uh, possible reference to Beto O'Rourke by saying, I did win my election. I just didn't get to have the job. That, I think, is what Rick Hassan regards as troubling, that she not only uh, will not concede the race, but that she feels that she actually did win her election. She just didn't get to be named the winner. She didn't get to have the job. Rick Hassan responds to say, if Abrams actually has now said that she did win her election, this is different and more troublesome than what she has said in the past. Basically, she said in the past that Brian Kemp was the legal winner, whether whether or not legitimate, and there was no way to, to say if she would have won under fairer conditions. So, Rick Hassan, again who I uh, respect when it comes to the law, does have some concerns about, uh, you know, recognizing the legitimacy of elections and who won and lost. He was one of the ones who was freaking out when Donald Trump was saying he might or might not consider the 2016 election to be legitimate. I was not freaking out about that because I have a question. I have questions about a lot of elections that the citizens are not allowed to oversee to find out who actually won or lost. And nowhere is that more so the case than in Georgia. Where nobody across the state can oversee any votes to find out whether any of them were recorded accurately as cast at the polling place because they use 100 percent unverifiable election uh, uh, voting systems across the entire state.
1: Which don't even have any kind of paper, so there would be nothing to go back and look at to try to figure out who won the election.
0: Correct. So uh, the fact that she's, you know, now saying I did win my election, well, I don't know if she did win or if she did lose. But the truth is, nobody knows. And that's the problem. That's the problem that I've been trying to point out. So if Rick Hassan is troubled because Abrams is saying it out loud, well, sorry, Uh, Rick Hassan also said that uh, the Help America Vote Act of 2002, which put four uh, billion dollars into these type of voting systems while he's criticized the Help America Vote Act, uh, he said years ago to me that the one thing that uh, he liked about Hava was that it put all of that. Uh, that it put all of that money into these voting systems, which he argues are an improvement over where we were before we got things like 100 percent unverifiable touchscreen voting systems. So, uh, you know, he, he knows election law. I um, he's not so quite so good when it comes to uh, voting systems and election integrity
1: and uh, the need yeah. for the public to be able to know that whoever won actually, actually won. Did win. That's and, right. And I just have to. Put some kudos on Stacey Abrams here, because by doing this, she is actually succeeding in continuing uh, Mm -hmm. to talk about the problems with verification in our elections. She's bringing it up, and by bringing it up, she's forcing them to talk about it.
0: I hope so. She did have a Super Bowl ad calling for hand-marked paper ballots, for which I am quite grateful that she uh, had. Hassan notes that Andrew Gillum of Florida Uh, the African-American Democratic candidate who uh, is said to have lost there very narrowly in the uh, gubernatorial race last November. Uh, He says Andrew Gillum uh, did not go quite as far about the Florida governor's race, which Gillum is said to have lost. Uh, He notes that during an appearance on Real Time with Bill Maher, Andrew Gillum last week said that uh, not everybody's voice was heard in November. Gillum said, had we been able to legally count every one of those votes, not just in Florida, but in Georgia, yes, in Stacey Abrams race, I wonder what the outcome may have been. So Gillum is also questioning uh, the results of the race, even if he didn't go uh, quite as far as to say that as uh, uh, Abrams did that, yes, she believes she did win. Our friend Marilyn Marks of the Coalition for Good Governance uh, replied to to, uh, uh, Hassan's tweets by saying, Sadly, in Georgia, it is impossible to know who won any election without doing a court-approved deep dive into the machine programming, and maybe not even then. The results cannot be audited, she noted. Correctly. That is what we at the Coalition for Good Governance are doing in our challenge to the lieutenant governor's race in Georgia. She says, We may also learn about the machine programming in the governor's race when discovery is permitted. She said, We do know that in the lieutenant governor's race, 127,000 votes are missing. We've talked about that with her on this show. She's got a lawsuit to that end, trying to figure out what happened there, trying to look at those machines. We talked to her. Uh, On this show about that in uh, several times. Uh, And she says, and that there was a disparate machine irregularity impact on black communities. In other words, there were fewer machines than uh, should have been placed into the polling places in black communities, she argues, in order to uh, increase the lines and make it harder for black voters to vote. By the way, I need to note, Marilyn Marks is a registered Republican. She adds, uh, but making matters worse, Georgia just passed HB 316 to adopt a new voting system that also cannot be audited or verified. Seems to be considered a feature in Georgia that is worth quite a premium price to the favorite vendors. They are paying about three times more for this uh, unverifiable voting touchscreen voting system in Georgia than they would have had to use for hand marked paper ballots. Um, and yet Rick Hassan is troubled that Stacey Abrams believes she did win. So if 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 Hassan thinks Abrams comments are troubling, just wait until folks realize uh, that their votes um, were cast on unverifiable systems here, for example, in Los Angeles County in 2020 in the presidential election. Wait till they find out about that if they have any questions about the results because that's what's coming here to L.A. Oh, and now it's coming, as I mentioned, to the entire state of Georgia and is coming to parts of Pennsylvania, a key swing state, including Philadelphia, 100 percent unverifiable, also across the state of Delaware and in counties in other swing states such as Ohio and parts of New Jersey and New York. And it's already in Kansas and it's coming to Texas. So it would be nice if some of these academics were uh, less worried about people declaring elections illegitimate and worked harder to make sure that we actually have elections that are legitimate and that the people, the candidates and the voters can know are legitimate. Speaking of legitimate or rather illegitimate elections, let's move down to the state of Florida. We'll take a quick break and talk about what Republicans are trying to do there to thwart the will of the people. And they're doing it in broad daylight. That story is next on the broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't touch that dial. Welcome back. It's the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from Bradblog.com. After the Civil War, as voting rights reporter Ari, Ari Berman explained at Mother Jones last year, the white Confederates, who still controlled Florida, had a problem. The state had been forced to accept the 13th, 14th and 15th Amendments, which guaranteed equal rights for newly freed slaves in order to rejoin the Union. And now black registered voters outnumbered white ones. White Floridians responded by adopting a constitution in 1868, that disenfranchised anyone with a felony conviction and added to the felony roster a variety of crimes they believed African-Americans were likelier to be convicted of. One Republican leader said the law would keep the state from becoming, quote, n-wordized." A decade later, more than 95 percent of people in Florida's convict camps were African-Americans. The long list of crimes considered to be felonies in Florida now includes some 533 different infractions, including crimes like disturbing a lobster trap and trespassing on a construction site, according to Berman. Those are all now felonies. The result, at least prior to last November's election, a full 10 percent of the state's adult population was ineligible to vote. Because of a criminal record, including one in five African-Americans, more than one point seven million voters in the tightly divided swing state were kept out of the democratic process entirely in Florida, even long after they had completed any sentence for their crime. They were done with their sentence. They were still not allowed to vote. But last November, in a landmark election during the midterms in the state of Florida, nearly 65 percent of voters in the Sunshine State across all parties voted to finally end Florida's shameful, decades old, lifelong prohibition on former felons being allowed to register and vote. It had been one of the last states in the Union to continue this embarrassing post-Reconstruction Jim Crow era relic which has prevented millions from voting and from fully participating in society and their own supposedly representative democracy under which they live and they pay taxes even long after they had fully completed their sentences. Some previous state governors in Florida had tried to roll back this anti small d democratic charade, at at least in part, only to see such efforts reversed by subsequent state governors. So last year, the matter was finally brought to the voters to let them decide for themselves via ballot referendum for a state constitutional amendment, as organized by the Florida Rights Restoration Coalition who gathered more than 800,000 signatures across the state to get this measure on the ballot last year. The Florida Rights Restoration Center is a nonpartisan, nonprofit organization led by Desmond Mead, a former felon himself and one who had been denied his right to vote for well over a decade in Florida, even after being released from prison in 2005. When Meade's wife, Sheena, ran for the Florida House of Representatives in 2016, Desmond was barred from voting for her. Well, last year's statewide gubernatorial and U.S. Senate races in Florida, you may recall, were notoriously close, leading to unprecedented statewide recounts or what suffices for them in the state of Florida, as we covered in some detail on this program at the time. Uh, Those ultimately resulted in narrow Republican wins in both of those cases. But on Amendment 4, the restoration of voting rights for felons upon completion of their sentences, including prison terms, parole and probation. The voice of the voters was unmistakable. The measure was adopted overwhelmingly by Florida voters, 64 and percent to 35 and percent. That result well over the 60 percent required in Florida to adopt an amendment to the state's constitution, of course, that was achieved without even the uh, more than one and a half million former felons who were still barred from voting last year, even on their own right to vote. Happily, however, the measure passed anyway, and it took effect on January 1 of this year, disallowing, as the referendum noted, registration by former felons who had been convicted of murder or felony sexual offenses. But beyond that, its supporters, including the ACLU of Florida, argued that the amendment was self-executing. In other words, as of January 1, former felons who met the amendment's criteria were and are at least according to the Florida Rights Restoration Coalition, the ACLU, and now I believe by most of the state's elections officials, free to register and finally participate in elections in the state. On Tuesday this week, however, there's always a however, a a House subcommittee on a party-line vote approved a GOP-sponsored bill that would place a number of new limitations on Amendment 4, including by defining a list of offenses meant to fall under the amendment's restrictions on sexual offenses, including sexting, apparently, and perhaps most controversially, a new limitation that critics, including the ACLU, are deriding as an unlawful poll tax, which would be both unconstitutional and in violation of the intention of Florida's voters. When passing their landmark and long overdue constitutional amendment Kirk Bailey political director for ACLU of Florida responded to yesterday's Florida House vote as uh, by calling it an affront to Florida voters One which raises, quote, serious constitutional concerns which thwart the will of the people and extends far beyond what any reasonable person would conclude the voters intended when they passed Amendment 4. Joining us now to explain what Republicans in the Florida legislature appear on their way to doing, even as thousands of previously ineligible former felons have already registered to vote in advance of important elections, Not to mention next year's crucial presidential election, in which Amendment 4 could help swing the state of Florida, is Dr. Micah Kubik. He is the executive director of the ACLU of Florida. Uh, Prior to that position, uh, he served in the same role as executive director of the ACLU of Kansas for three years, where he had the honor of taking on the notorious GOP voter fraud uh, fraudster. Uh, Secretary of State Chris Kobach, out of the frying pan and into the fire. Dr. Kubik, I, I knew I would screw up your name. Welcome to the broadcast, sir.
2: Thanks very much for having me here. Uh,
0: appreciate it. Uh, so what, what does this new measure aim to do, uh, which, uh, as the ACLU argues, violates the will of voters on Amendment 4 last year?
2: So this new measure really tries to create new barriers, new obstacles for folks uh, to register to vote. Uh, It's completely unnecessary. Uh, Last fall, the voters of Florida spoke loud and clear and said that they wanted uh, the 1.4 million uh, folks in our community who are not allowed to vote because of a past felony conviction. They wanted to bring those folks uh, back into the fold to make sure that they had the opportunity to register and vote. Uh, The language of the constitutional amendment is crystal clear. Uh, It was crystal clear to voters. It was crystal clear to the Supreme Court of the state of Florida that had to sign off on the language going on the ballot. Uh, No one had any doubt about what they were voting for, uh, what it would do, when it would do it. Uh, And now, all of a sudden, there are some folks in the Florida legislature who don't want to follow the law who don't want to follow the Constitution as amended, who don't want to follow the law of the state of Florida, and instead want to create an entirely new process, an entirely new way of doing this, just for the sake of creating some additional burdens and barriers uh, to people being registered to vote. And that's really a shame.
0: Now, do some, and we'll get into the specifics of what they are trying to do and uh, why uh, many are describing this as a poll tax, but uh, some Florida constitutional amendments do require legislation uh, to help enact them. In other words, the, the text on the ballot is necessarily very uh, short and sweet, uh, and then there are, uh, then there's a law that need to be passed by the legislature to actually enact that uh, constitutional amendment, no?
2: So that's true, and this is not one of those. Okay. Uh, so in fact, the, the way the language was written was written very deliberately mm-hmm. so that it would be self-executing. Uh, the Florida Supreme Court, when it was reviewing it, because the Supreme Court has to review all of the ballot language for it to go uh, on the ballot for the voters to review, also agreed that it was self-executing. Uh, there's really... Uh, Nothing to do here. Uh, There's nothing in addition that the legislature needs to do. This problem has been solved. And so rather than acknowledging that the problem has been solved, they are in search of new problems to create Mm. instead.
0: Does Florida law bar such legislation? In other words, if they wanted to, uh, uh, you know, put some restrictions or some specifics onto this constitutional measure, is there anything that bars the Florida state legislature from doing so? so
2: it, it would not necessarily bar them from doing so. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's certainly unnecessary, but it's not necessarily illegal for them to do so. I do think there are some uh, things that they are talking about doing with some of these provisions that are certainly unconstitutional overreach, mm-hmm. uh, but that has nothing to do with Amendment 4. That just has to do uh, with their willingness to create new barriers and burdens in ways that are problematic, that violate the separation of powers, that create uh, new processes uh, and new ways of registering that apply only uh, to this subset of people rather than the broader community. Those things are problematic not because of uh, amendment 4 specifically, uh, they would be problematic under under any constitutional
0: amendment. Well, let's talk about one of those points uh, that I mentioned. Uh, many are critiquing this measure that was passed out of subcommittee on, uh, on Tuesday in Florida uh, that's being regarded as a poll tax. Now, the chair of this uh, House subcommittee Uh, a guy by the name of uh, Representative James Grant, uh, he was uh, furious about the notion that this is seen as a poll tax. He says it is near arrogance to suggest this is a poll tax, says that uh, to suggest the bill is a poll tax, quote, diminishes the atrocity of what a poll tax actually is. To compare that to this is a slap in the face. So what is this provision that is being regarded as a poll tax and, uh, and and is James Grant right about that, that it's unfair to even compare it to such a thing?
2: So, uh, first of all, I think that what is important here is to remember the experiences of the 1.4 million people who have been disenfranchised Uh, for decades, for generations in Florida, Mm -hmm. uh, who have been told that they are not part of our community, essentially. Because remember, that's what the right to vote is really about. Mm -hmm. It's not about going into the ballot box and voting for a Democrat or a Republican or a Libertarian or anyone, right? Uh, In fact, talking about it in that way almost trivializes what it is. Mm -hmm. The right to vote is really a marker of citizenship. It's a marker of who counts and who doesn't, who matters, who doesn't, who's part of the community and who is not. And the fact that we have excluded 1.4 million people from our community for a long time uh, has been a slap in the face to them, their friends, their family, those around them. Uh, and the fact that we are today talking about ways to make it harder, again, after these folks worked hard to make sure that this got on the ballot, is the real slap in the face. Mm-hmm. Let's be clear. Yeah. Uh, the reason that the Constitutional Amendment was on the ballot in the first place was because people in communities all over this state went to the legislature hat in hand for decades, Mm -hmm. asking them to do something about it, and got nowhere. The politicians refused to act, and so people in the community had to go out and collect signatures. It took years. It took years of effort to get this on the ballot and then have 65% of the people voting for it, (laughs) and to now undermine it is a real slap in the face.
0: Well, yeah, well, let me me just respond to that, because, uh, yeah, it was 65 percent. As I noted, you know, that was across all parties uh, during last year's election. And the reason I'm specifying the difference between Republicans and Democrats here is because, as I understand it, this bill currently moving through the House is being put forward by Republicans, and it passed out of that subcommittee on a party line vote. So I do think it's important to note there. But, yeah, I take your point. Obviously, this is not, at least to me, a partisan issue, frankly, right,
2: right, and, and the fact that he characterizes people complaining about it and people criticizing it as a slap in the face is, right. is I think, so problematic. Right, I mean, I think that just fundamentally misses the point right. of what people are upset about. Right, okay. they are upset that their will is being undermined, and for Chairman Grant to call that the slap in the face is, I think, deeply problematic.
0: So, what is the poll um, tax part of this then?
2: So, w- what this is is that under the constitutional amendment. Uh, It said that once your sentence was completed, you would be eligible to register again. Uh, And the terms of completion are going to vary in each individual case. Mm -hmm. But basically, it means that a judge uh, says these are the things that you have to do as part of your sentence. Mm -hmm. Sometimes those include, uh, for example, restitution, uh, some fine, some fees, depending on the situation, but it is spelled out in very clear terms in your sentence. Mm -hmm. Uh, What the bill in front of the committee does is say that all fines, all fees, all restitution, any financial obligation arising from the conviction, which could be all sorts of things that we have not even considered because the language that they are using is so ambiguous. Anything financial arising from your conviction you would have to repay in order to be eligible to vote, uh, even if it was not part of the terms of your sentence, right? So they're changing the process completely and changing it in a way that had never been used in the state of Florida before. Even when folks were getting their rights restored before and had uh, financial obligations, some of them were applied because of the terms of sentence, some were separate from it. And now they're saying these financial obligations Uh, are essential no matter what they're rewriting the amendment they're rewriting the process that has been used throughout florida Mm -hmm. and they're creating a special set of conditions that only apply to ex-offenders that don't apply to anyone else um and that is deeply problematic because it means that there are going to be a whole bunch of folks in this community who should be part of the community who should be eligible to participate but who have uh, all sorts of fines and fees associated with the criminal justice system that are attached to them uh... and that they may not be able to uh... repay um, especially because of employment conditions right mm-hmm. um... and so that means that essentially they're saying Folks have to be able to to pay these financial obligations before they can register and vote. Uh, That's not the will of the people. That wasn't the way the amendment was written, Uh, and it's just plain wrong to boot.
0: So, in other words, we're talking about uh, perhaps there are uh, fines, court fees or something that still may be owed even after the sentence is completed? Or, or
2: judgments uh-huh. uh you know particularly uh, judgments that might have been turned into civil judgments where you're supposed to repay them over time rather than all at once uh-huh. or uh, there are all sorts of various fees that is, that are attached to a probation or parole uh-huh. uh or that others levy against you in the meantime and and they want them to repay those in order to be eligible to register,
0: which seems quite. <laughs> almost literally the definition of a poll tax in other words there may be a a, a lot of people who are uh, who complete their sentence uh, who still owe in some fashion or another money uh, uh, regarding that uh, regarding that offense and hey if they happen to come from a well-off family all they got to do is pay off that money and they're allowed to vote but if they are uh, poor if they're living in poverty they don't have that money therefore then they can't register and vote. Am I understanding that correctly?
2: You are understanding it correctly. That your ability to register to vote is going to be dependent on your ability to access financial resources, and a lot of times the the fees and fines associated are quite high. Uh, so they're they're not within uh, uh, the normal person's grasp, no mm-hmm. matter what. Uh, but the other thing that I think is just really important to stress here is that this is them completely rewriting the amendment, right? They are, they are explicitly saying uh, that they want to include fees and fines and other financial obligations that were not considered part of the sentence. That's not the process. The process that the constitutional amendment specifies mm-hmm. is once you have completed the terms of your sentence, that's it. That's all you have to do complete the terms of your sentence. And, and, um, and now they want to add all this other stuff into the mix to make it harder for people. And, and that process is just
0: wrong. And they were also uh, apparently trying to add a lot of uh, uh, of offenses, describing them as sex offenses, including, as I understand it, sexting and sex with animals. And somehow they were putting that on the list of things that could bar one from uh, from from voting for life, even under constitutional uh, amendment four, uh, the, uh, the the chairman of that committee, James Grant, later removed. I guess those two uh, those two items: sexting and sex with animals. But is it true that the term felony sex offense is not specifically designed, and should it be in order to properly enact this amendment?
2: So there are a number of offenses in the Florida statute that specifically have the word. Uh, Sex or sexual in them and are felonies, and those are the ones that people had the expectation would be included. Uh, this is another example of trying to find ways to make it more complicated than it has to be. Sometimes it just isn't that hard. Uh, you know, a, a big part of this debate was also about what counts as murder, uh the constitutional amendment says you wouldn't be eligible to vote again to register if you had been convicted of murder. And there was this long debate about well what is murder? Well, it's pretty obvious the the laws in the Florida statute, the crimes in the Florida statute that say murder in them are the ones that are murder. <laughs> the same way that felony sexual offenses are the felonies that include the word sex or sexual in them. Uh, and instead, there's this desperate hunt to find other crimes to make the list longer, to make it more complicated, to make it harder for people to register. Um, and that's just a slap in the face. It's defiance of what the people wanted, and it's totally unnecessary.
0: I'm speaking with the, uh, Dr. Mike, Dr. Micah Kubik, the executive director of the ACLU of Florida. Uh, do, do we know how many uh, former felons now since January 1, since Amendment 4 has kicked in, uh, have already registered to vote? And would those newly registered voters uh, presumably be removed From the rolls, if this measure was adopted by the legislature and and, and signed by the governor?
2: So we don't know exactly how many uh, returning citizens have registered since January Mm -hmm. when this kicked in. We do know, though, that voter registrations were significantly up in January. Uh, So we know January of 2019, voter registrations for that month were 37 percent higher than the same month in 2018 Mm -hmm. or in 2017. Right, and what's changed in the meantime? Amendment four. Yeah. Uh, so it's pretty likely that that is the the reason for that increase. We can't say for sure because, amazingly, there is not a single uh, centralized list in the state of Florida to tell us who is newly eligible. Mm. The state doesn't have such a system, which is crazy in and of itself. So we have no way of knowing who the newly Eligible folks are to be able to reach out to them and try and encourage them to register in the first place.
0: Well, um, well, well welcome to Florida, Michael. Sounds, <laughs> sounds like you just got there. Uh, if this if this is adopted, um, is there enough time before voting starts in in twenty twenty? I know there are also local elections uh, coming up. You know, over the next year. But would there be enough time uh, before voting starts for the 2020 presidential election for this to be adjudicated one way or another? And if not, I'm wondering how does Florida work here, meaning um, if this law passes, if there's a challenge to it, which would be put on hold uh, on pause if this ha- needs time to work through court would the actual <laughs> amendment 4 be paused uh, that was passed by voters or would this uh, or, or would the legislature's law uh, that puts limits on it be paused as it's sorted out in court any idea?
2: So, firstly, I think we are still hopeful that this will not pass. It's gone through one committee on the House side. It still has a few more to go through on the House side, and mm-hmm. then it has three to go through on the Senate side. And we're hopeful that, in part because of national attention, like uh, your show today, mm-hmm. uh, that folks will, will, will turn away uh, from doing this terrible, terrible thing. Um, but, of course, if it does pass, then uh, folks in the voting rights community will be giving it a long, hard look and seeing what options uh, exist, including uh, legal options, uh, and if litigation does move forward, I'm confident that there is enough time uh, for it to be settled before the presidential election uh, in 2020. You know, the, the mm-hmm. criminal the, the justice system in general um, understands that elections have time-certain dates. Uh, it's not something that you can move around. Uh, and so when there are challenges around voting rights, they they tend to move relatively quickly uh, and recognize that uh, you, you cannot get back the right to vote in an election that has already passed. Right. So they try very hard to make sure that whatever rulings are in place are ones that apply uh, ahead of the election so that everyone knows what the rules for that election are, regardless of which side they're on in that legal battle. Folks need to know the rules of the election in order for
0: it to go smoothly. That's that's the theory. We've seen uh, uh, quite a few laws, uh, particularly with redistricting, that haven't necessarily followed that, uh, and, and other voting rights uh, issues actually that haven't necessarily followed that notion. Uh, but that is the theory. I hope you're right. Uh, last question, uh, Micah, what's the uh, what what is next for this measure? It's passed that one subcommittee. Uh, where does it go from here and now what can listeners in or out of Florida at this point do to to help because obviously uh, voting in Florida as I've uh, heard over the years does have an effect on the entire nation when it comes to presidential elections
2: that's right so the next step is that it goes to another committee of the house in order for a bill to become a law in the Florida legislature it has to pass through three separate committees of each chamber uh, so it's still got a, a ways to go here over the next couple of weeks. And so it's our hope that it will be stopped, that they will think better of it and will reverse course. What folks in Florida can do is, of course, contact their own member of the state legislature, uh, let them know that this is not something that they support, that they think it defies the will of the voters back in November, not something that they're going to stand for. And what folks at the national level can do is just keep paying attention. Uh, you know, the the passage of Amendment 4 back in the fall was, I would argue, one of the biggest victories for voting rights that we have had in decades in this country, one of the biggest proactive victories. And that means that all of us who care about the right to vote, who want citizens to participate in our democracy, we've got to do everything that we can uh, to keep that victory, to make sure that it stays in place. Um, and having a whole bunch of eyes on Florida, watching every move, uh, and saying this is something that, that we're interested in. Uh, That actually does make a difference.
0: Dr. Micah Kubik, Executive Director of the ACLU of Florida. You can uh, find, follow, and support their work at ACLUFL.org. You can find them on the Twitters at ACLUFL. And by the way, the Florida Rights Restoration Coalition, which uh, is doing just extraordinary work uh, to get this uh, amendment passed in the first place and now, I guess, saved from the inevitable attacks. You can find their work at FloridaRRC.com and on the Twitters at FL Rights Restore. Dr. Kubik, greatly appreciate you joining us today. Hope you don't mind if we bother you again uh, sometime in the future, just in case there's any, uh, you know, Florida voting problems that come up uh, over the next year or two.
2: I'll be glad to do it even under those terrible circumstances. So <laughs> thanks so much for having me.
0: And thank you. Okay, uh, take a break. And we'll come back with some better circumstances. Desi Doyne, you're going to like this. Some good news oh, good. out of the federal court. Concerning, um, well, oil, gas and Wyoming. That's next on the broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't go away. Hey, this is Brad. If you haven't noticed by now, it's no easy feat finding facts, real facts, not alternative facts over your public airwaves. We try to bring you real facts, truth and clarity without fear or favor each and every day on the broadcast. But we need your help to do it, and that help is needed more now than ever. Please stop by bradblog.com/donate today. That's bradblog.com/donate and thanks. Mac, it's the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from BradBlog.com. We have been uh, looking at a number of too, too many fossil fueled and climate related disasters this week. Yeah, uh, so it's Desi been a bad, very bad week. Very bad week. Uh, we had uh, three refinery fires, one in Los Angeles, two in uh, Houston, one of them just. Enormous! Uh, yes. That I think we've got some good news about, at least.
1: Yes, the uh, the chemical, the petrochemical fire that had been raging for three or almost four days in Houston uh, that has been declared out.
0: Been putting out huge plumes of black smoke oh, that across. spread
1: across the Houston yeah. region, and uh, they said the officials said there were no. Problems with air quality. They said it was within safe limits. Of course. But to be honest, this is Texas. That ain't saying much.
0: Yeah. That was the Texas Department of Environmental Quality. Quality. Yeah. Yeah. So nothing to worry about there. Also, we've got a half a dozen upper Midwestern states that are still facing catastrophic. Record flooding this week, thanks to uh, fossil-fueled extreme weather up there, as uh, Trump continues to regard the science of climate change as a hoax. Well, finally, some good news here, and actually um, some very good news here, which uh, one group has described as the Holy Grail ruling That they have been waiting for in federal court. A federal judge on Tuesday blocked oil and gas drilling on almost 500 square miles in Wyoming and said the federal government must consider the cumulative climate change impact of leasing broad swaths of U.S. public land for oil and gas exploration. The order marks the latest in a string of court rulings over the past decade, including one last month in Montana, that have faulted the U.S. government for inadequate consideration of greenhouse gas emissions when approving oil, gas and coal projects on federal land. U.S. District Judge Rudolph Contreras in Washington appeared to go a step further, however, than other judges in his order issued late on Tuesday Previous rulings focused on individual lease sales or permits, but Contreras said that when the U.S. Bureau of Land Management, the BLM, auctions public lands for oil and gas leasing, officials must consider emissions from past, present, and foreseeable future oil and gas leases nationwide. So not just one particular uh, well and the impact that the drilling might have, but actually the use of what they're going to pull out of the ground and the emissions that will be caused in the future, as I understand it.
1: Yeah, this is a very big deal. The National Environmental Policy Act requires uh, whatever administration, the federal government must calculate the climate change impact. Now, previously, no one has really pressed the oil industry or any administration on why are you only calculating the impact from this small one-acre, two-acre lease, which is right. not going to be huge, whereas if you have to include large swaths... D-
0: what comes of that and drilling on that out one little of that, acre. But, yeah. but even
1: then, not just that one acre, but the entirety of the of all the swaths put mm-hmm. together, mm-hmm. that's a huge impact, and that has big implications for climate change, as we already know.
0: Contreras uh, writes in his ruling, uh, quote, given the national cumulative nature of climate change, considering each individual Individual drilling project in a vacuum deprives the agency and the public of the context necessary to evaluate oil and gas drilling on federal land. This is big. The ruling coincides with, or arguably pushes back against, I would say, the aggressive push by the Trump administration to open more public lands to energy development, which uh, the Obama administration did as well. But Donald Trump is now doing it on steroids. Yes. It it came in a lawsuit that challenged leases issued in Wyoming and Utah and Colorado in twenty in twenty fifteen and twenty sixteen during the Obama administration. Only the leases in Wyoming were immediately addressed in Contreras' ruling which blocks federal officials from issuing drilling permits until they conduct a new environmental review looking more closely at greenhouse gas emissions.
1: Yeah, so it's temporary, but it is a big deal.
0: Well, it's temporary, but it's going to force this environmental review to right. recognize the potential dangers that we are really talking about here. Uh, the case was brought by the ad- two advocacy groups, Wild Earth Guardians and Physicians for Social Responsibility. Jeremy Nichols, uh, the program director at Wild Earth Guardians, predicted that the ruling was going to have much bigger implications than just a halt to drilling in some areas of Wyoming. Assuming the government does what the judge has asked, uh, Nichols said, This is the holy grail ruling we have been after, especially with oil and gas. It calls into question the legality of oil and gas leasing that that is happening everywhere. Burning fossil fuels extracted from federal land generates the equivalent of 1.4 billion tons annually of the greenhouse gas carbon dioxide. That, according to a November report from the U.S. Geological Survey, that alone is equivalent to almost one quarter of total U.S. carbon dioxide emissions. I had not realized that. That's huge. Yeah. So uh, that's huge. And this ruling is huge, at least potentially. We will find out. No doubt Desi will be uh, have more on this, I suspect, (laughs) in our upcoming Green News reports. Until then, we got to get out. My thanks to producer Desi Doyen and to my guest today, Dr. Micah Kubik of the florida aclu and to all of you for spending a portion of your day with us or night with us it's always greatly appreciated if you missed any portion of today's show or any other download it for free and share it with everyone you know by stopping by bradblog.com donate you can drop me email if you like i am bradcast at bradblog.com always enjoy reading your mail sometimes sharing them on air uh, and find, follow, and share what we do on the Facebooks and the Twitters at the Brad Blog. Finally, my thanks, as ever, to those of you who stop by BradBlog.com slash donate to help us do what we try to do every day over your public airway. We cannot do it without you and your support. We only do it with you and your support. So thank you for stopping by BradBlog.com Alright, that's it. Until we meet again tomorrow, make it a date. I'm Brant Friedman. Good luck, world.